Several years ago, uh, around Christmas time, uh, my wife and I uh, had come to the realization that it was going to be one of those years we weren't going to make it to Michigan uh, for Christmas. We were at the time living in uh, southern Ohio, living on a youth pastor's salary. Uh, we had a new baby, that would be Karis, uh, and, uh, and just the general busyness of the holiday season for the pastor uh, was really just going to keep us from being able to go. And I had already called my mom and let her know we weren't going to make it. Of course, she was disappointed. But then I received a phone call from my oldest brother letting me know that my brother Nathan, who would be my second oldest brother, was going to make the trip home for Christmas. This was unusual. Nathan makes an appearance in Michigan for Christmas about every four or five years. Uh, And so we knew this was going to be a special situation. I was also told that mom didn't know. Mom didn't know he was coming, and so we all thought, well, maybe we'd make it a bigger surprise. Carol and I and the two kids would make our way there, and and Nathan would make his way there, and we would surprise Mom with this very special Christmas. Well, seeing we didn't want our mom to have a heart attack, we thought, well, maybe, maybe we, me and Carol, would first arrive with the two kids unexpectedly a couple of days before my brother, which is what we did. But the scene in my mind, as we were all sitting in the living room of my sister's house, and we were kind of getting ready for what was a normal Christmas time uh, for us. We were eating food and, and about to open presents when, uh, when my brother arrived. Everybody in that room, except for my mother, knew that he was coming. And when he walked into the living room and she saw him, I will never forget the joy on her face. It was a very special moment. And as I prepared this message this week and I began to look into our text this morning, there were certain words that kept coming up in my notes, things like unexpected, surprising, unbelievable. And as I was studying, that moment of joy on my mother's face came to mind. I told you last week that my desire this year for the Christmas season is to help you look at the nativity, whether it's the one you have sitting at home on your shelf or uh, the live nativity coming up here at the church in a couple of weeks, I want you to see that moment in the fullest picture possible. Now, last week, Isaiah was talking about God's salvation for his people. The Jewish people had time in the midst of a crisis. And now he's going to turn his attention to something bigger. Isaiah wants the people of God to know that this moment where he saves them from the Assyrians and he saves them from uh, from Israel, that this wasn't just a one-off moment of divine sovereignty. God has a big plan. This child named Emmanuel, the the son that's going to be called the Prince of Peace, this was about much more than the nation of Judah. There's a bigger picture. And just like a good book, Isaiah is pointing to the fact that one day God is going to take millions of plot points and bring them all together to this grand final reveal. And the nativity scene acts as a moment. You ever had that moment where you're reading a book and you're about halfway, maybe just a little bit further along and you kind of have that aha moment? I know where this is going. And the nativity is supposed to act that way for us as Christians, to say, aha, I know where this is going. 
Even if you had never read the rest of your New Testament, when you arrived in Luke chapter 2 and saw all that was happening, your mind or the, the original readers of Matthew would have come back to a text like this. And so let me give you this morning three applications of the aha moment, three, three applications of the nativity as found here by Isaiah. Number one, number one, satisfaction comes from outside of the world. Satisfaction comes from outside of the world. Here in verse 14, we reach an unexpected word of hope. We have a sudden outcry of singing for joy. Now, the reason this is unexpected is because of everything that leads up to verse 14. Remember, as I shared with you last week, there's a a crisis going on in Judah. Word is that Assyria and Israel are going to join together and invade Judah. And this crisis is causing people to panic. The king doesn't want to have faith. The people are going to necromancers and uh, and tarot card readers, uh, trying to figure out what they should do. God's promising to save them. But the point is, there's this crisis, and the people are refusing to act on faith. But then over the next few chapters, in fact, you might have one of those Bibles that has the chapter headings. If you flipped backwards a few chapters, you'll note we have chapter after chapter of judgment against different nations. Judgment against uh, Egypt, and judgment against Babylon, and judgment against Moab. And each one of them are being judged because they too are refusing to live by faith. And then we get to chapters 23 and 24, and Isaiah now turns his attention not just to Judah, not just to these surrounding nations, but to the whole world. The whole world is refusing to live by faith. In fact, in chapters 23 and 24, there's a lot of Hebrew there that is very similar to the story of Noah. That that, that Isaiah is, is taking the reader to a view of the whole world where all you see are people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. All you see are people who are uh, 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 drinking wine to excess. They're drunk. They're, they're greedy. They're, the pleasures of, of, of humankind are everywhere, and it's karaoke night every night. Then God arrives. And in chapter 24, Isaiah says, when God arrives, something new is going to happen. In fact, the language there is very similar to the beginning of Genesis. Remember at the beginning of your Bible, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and empty. And the idea here is God's going to show up, and he's going to do something, and he's going to reshape things. He's going to refill things. The Messiah's arrival is going to make a dramatic difference. And it's going to start by God's judgment to the whole world, he's going to take away everything they were looking to for satisfaction. In verses 7 through 9 of chapter 24, the wine is going to become bitter. The food is going to get bland. The music is going to stop. The people of the earth, with all of their pleasures, are going to consider life meaning- without, sorry, without their pleasures. Because they don't have access to them anymore because the grapes have blight on them. The food is growing moldy. Without their pleasure, suddenly life is going to be meaningless and unsatisfying. That brings us to verse 14. What causes them to start singing again? Where does the joy come from? 
If it's not from food or wine or money or, or, or physical pleasure, where does the joy come from? Well, if you look at verse 16, now some of you are going to have this in your Bible. It's going to say, even glory to the righteous. That word righteous there is a singular proper noun, meaning he's talking about a person. Now, again, some of you have that in your Bible. Some of you may not. But the idea there is the reason they have joy, the reason they're singing, is because of the glory of the righteous one. The the point of the passage is the arrival of the Messiah and the arrival of his kingdom is going to be actual, total, real satisfaction. The nations of the earth have dropped whatever it was they were looking to for satisfaction, and they're going to find it in the righteous or the righteous one. It's the kind of joy, the kind of happiness that sets a person to singing. Now, if we go to our Christmas story, we meet some people who are looking for satisfaction. It opens with the words of Caesar Augustus taxing the whole world because he wants some money He wants to count the people so that he can have money. And we we meet Herod along the way who tries to trick the wise men because he's trying to hold on to his power. But if we bring it closer to home, we all know this too well, don't we? The person at work who does sinful things or underhanded things to advance their career or to make your job more miserable. We know there exist boys who are willing to say, I love you to the girl sitting next to him so we can get satisfaction out of her. We know that marriages end. We know relationships can get manipulated all on the basis of people just wanting satisfaction. And we certainly, many of us, know those who have chased after substances and experiences in order to gain satisfaction. And if we're honest... This happens during the holiday season. We begin to look for it in the meal being just right. The house being clean. Hoping that people are thankful for what we got them. Wanting to know that the presents we received are the kind of presents that real thought were put into it. And we look to all of it to bring us satisfaction. We want our satisfaction. And if anything comes short, we're disappointed, despondent, maybe even angry. But if we go back to the Christmas story, what do we see? That all of the nobodies who have nothing are the ones who are truly satisfied. All the people we meet that sing and rejoice are people like Baron Elizabeth. We, we meet people like the shepherds watching in their fields by night or foreigners from the east or Mary and Joseph. These are all the people who sing and rejoice because all of them eventually find themselves in the presence of the Christ child. It's like uh, I thought this week, it's like the Grinch who finds himself quite surprised when all the Who's go down to Whoville and they gather around the tree and they sing even without their roast beast and without their Christmas presents. And he begins to wonder, why do they sing? I took everything from them. So lots of people around this time of year, I hear it all the time. I see it in magazine covers. I hear it on the radio. People say, we got to get back to the real meaning of Christmas. So here's, here's my advice to you. If you want to get back to the real meaning of Christmas, send out Christmas cards, clean your house, make a ham, 
direct a program, buy gifts, receive gifts, and do all of it without looking to any of it for satisfaction. Now, if you can do that, if you can come and and approach all of those things with the fact and the reality that you can be and are fully satisfied through Jesus Christ, you can enjoy all of the cultural traditions of the Christmas season and know that you will never lose sight of the central thing. That this is about Jesus. And the nativity teaches us that real satisfaction for humanity came from outside of this world. Number two. The second application we can make the nativity coming from this passage. Number two, security. Security comes from outside of the world. Now if we come back to our verses here, this is actually a very odd picture. Note in verse 14, they sing and they shout for joy. Uh, Verse 15, the idea there is they give glory. And there's also included the idea of gifts of adoration in verse 15. Then there's the return again to singing and songs and glorying in verse 16. And the reason this is such an odd picture is because within the context of the text, all of the people who are singing and all the people who are praising and all the people who are giving gifts in this moment are people who are living in a city whose walls and gates are gone. They've been torn down. These songs, these praises, these gifts are being given between people who have absolutely no earthly security. And leading up to this point, security has been a theme. Again, in those chapters of judgment, you meet each of those nations and you find out that each of them had a form of security they were looking to. For example, Tyre and Sidon. They felt that they were secure from any sort of invading army because they were the economic powerhouse of their day. Nobody was going to invade, their thought was, nobody would invade Tyre and Sidon as long as everybody was getting rich. The Egyptians, they thought that their military might. Remember, the Egyptians have the chariots, the tank of the day. They thought their wise men and they thought their, their, uh, their sorcerers were better than everybody else's. That was their security. And then all these other nations that are listed, each one of them has their own defense. They, some of them think they're politically important, and others have the traditional walls and gates. But over the course of these judgments, each and every one of these nations, and all the confidence they had in the security, it was going to be taken from them. And they're going to find when it came to the judgment of God, there was no defense, there was nowhere to run. And the point of the picture here in our text is this inversion of the norm. These people who have the righteous one are far more secure without walls and gates than any of the nations ever were with their money and their military and their geographical power. Again, we go back to the Christmas story and we find all of these things. The arrival of the righteous one meant the arrival of peace. Isn't that what the angels sing? Peace on earth. Have you ever noticed in Luke chapter 2 when, we, when the angel makes that announcement, peace on earth, that's followed by this shout from the host of heaven. The army of God is marched before the shepherds. It is the evidence that peace is here. And this is what makes Christmas so very different than Easter. 
You see, during Easter, Christians for generations, we focused on the final week of Christ upon the crucifixion. And traditionally, we fast and we confess and we repent and we meditate deeply on these things. But Christmas, on the other hand, is far more similar to what we have in this text. We have singing and gift-giving and praising and eating and drinking. And we do it even if the walls and the gates have been crushed. Why? Because we are secure because, because of the arrival of the Lord's righteous one. The famous passage in Isaiah chapter 9 the people who walk in darkness see a great light. There's a geographical location mentioned in that text. It's a very important piece of information because that geographical point that is put on Isaiah chapter 9 is a point in the nation of Judah where people would have a tendency to invade. That's where forts would be built. And so in Isaiah 9, he's confirming that with the arrival of the Messiah, a place that was insecure becomes secure. And if we just consider the oddness of the picture, we start grasping why celebrating Christmas is so bothersome to people. Think about it. We have a picture of people singing and praising and eating and giving gifts while surrounded by ruin. And so people come to you and they ask you, Christian, how can you be so jolly this time of year? Aren't you even watching the news? How, how can you be so happy in this economy? What about global warming? What about the war on terror? How can you be at the mall buying gifts when the whole world seems to be going down the drain? Seems to me, in my observations in ministry this time of year, the enemy seems to work twice as hard to get people down in the dumps. But this isn't about sentimentalism. It's not about nostalgia. It's about the facts on the ground. The walls may be down, the gates may be crushed, but the righteous one is here. Jesus brings the security from outside of this world. And as I tell you every single year, that is why you can enjoy the extra piece of fudge. Number three. Number three, salvation will be offered to the whole world. Salvation will be offered to the whole world. Lastly, this morning, some of you may have this in your Bible, some of you may not, depending on your, self, your, your translation. But in the context here, the idea is this singing and this shouting from joy, uh, for joy is coming from the west, and it's coming from the east. And it's coming from the far ends of the earth, and it's coming from those who live on the coastlines. And again, in the context here, all of this joy and rejoicing is aimed at the righteous one. And even the second half of verse 16 is a rebuke from Isaiah for those who refuse to join in in this singing of praise. And again, we think of all the judgments leading up to this moment. If you pay attention over the course of those chapters, all of those judgments are against nations to the west, to the east, on the coastline. For example, the idea is, is that Tyre and Sidon are to the north, and Egypt is to the west, and Babylon is to the east. 
And all of these nations are going to be on the receiving end of God's judgment. But yet here in this text, the big surprise is that the same places where all these nations were that were being judged by God, out of these same places come praise and gifts of offering and shouts of joy to the Lord God of Israel. Out of these same places are songs and shouts of joy to the righteous one, the Messiah. It is a big surprise. Because if we had read chapter after chapter after chapter leading up to this moment we might come to the conclusion that the totality of people who are going to be saved in all of history is 28 and perhaps a scruffy dog. And that's it. Because it seems like God's saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. I'm judging you, I'm judging you, I'm judging you. And then we have this unexpected moment where out of all of these places of judgment, there's suddenly song. Entire and side on, once stood full of people consuming all manner of pleasure, come shouts of glory to God in the highest. And out of where Egypt stood, and all of its false religions and its idols, we get songs of joy directed towards the God of Israel. And where Babylon once stood, at the top of the geopolitical mountain, we have gifts and offerings arriving for the one true king. This group of singers and shouters and gift givers, this isn't a small group. They wouldn't just fill one football stadium. They're going to fill all of them. There can be a real struggle then to deal with what the angels say to the shepherd. Good tidings of great joy for all people. Goodwill towards mankind. And perhaps we read that and we don't stop and consider that God means what he says. And perhaps if we do consider, we wonder to ourselves, is God going to get carried away with this whole grace thing? Is he really making this offer to the whole world? You mean even my neighbor whose trash keeps blowing into my yard? You're talking about my boss who generally makes my life miserable? Are you talking about the teen mom or the the boy who tells the dirty joke in the locker room? And the answer is yes. To all of them, the announcement, unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And we actually literally see this happen when when he is born. Wise men from the east who in the time and place of Isaiah's day was the place of power and rulership. Men from the east, they show up and they have gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All gifts that an underling would give to his or her king. And then we move on to Revelation and we see it in his second return. We see songs and shouts and offerings made by people of every kindred, tribe, and nation. And we begin to see the bigger picture that what God meant. He said that this was good news for all people. This was peace for humanity. That salvation through Christ was going to be offered across every boundary. And grace was going to make its way all the way to the utter ends of the earth. And the application to the Christians is pretty clear. In fact, later Jesus is going to tell us the application of all of this. The application is this, if Jesus was willing to stoop so low as to become a little child, 
in order to save people, then unless you become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom. To follow Jesus does not only mean to take up a cross, but to first become a little child. To put off the self-importance, to put off the full of yourself adult, to put on the humility and tender mercies of a child. In Philippians 2, we are called to look to Jesus' humility in becoming a baby, then a servant, and then a sacrifice, and then we're called to imitate all of it. And my hope this morning is that you catch a small glimpse here of the unexpected, the surprising, and the unbelievable application of the Christmas story. Because if you're a Christian this morning, you can be and will be fully satisfied through Jesus Christ. And if you seek that satisfaction that can only be found in Him, you can celebrate this Christmas season in all sorts of freedom, knowing you're not going to lose sight of the central thing that Jesus came to save. And if you're a Christian, that means the Christmas season brings an opportunity to be grounded once again by facts. Not sentimentalism, not nostalgia, not fake news. That Jesus turns everything on his ear. Uh, He brings a security and rest that are not found in this world. And so you can go and you can make gingerbread cookies even on a bad case of the Mondays. And lastly, if you're a Christian this morning, let the Christmas season be the renewal of your walk with Jesus. He came to save And from the east and from the west and from coastline to coastline. There will be those who will be saved. And we then put away all of our self-importance. And we put away all of our adult, uh, full of ourselvesness. And we go back to the tender mercies and the humility of a child. And then we take up our cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father. What an unusual thing to be reminded that if all of the satisfying things of this world were to be taken away, that we can still be fully satisfied in Christ. That we can be reminded that, that even if we are surrounded by ruin, we have a security in Christ. And a reminder, a, a, a grounding that reminds us that this offer of salvation unto you is born this day a Savior. Was an offer made to the whole world. And so let us, Father, put on humility and tender mercies and take up our cross and follow him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close the service this morning, we're going to sing about what the pastor just preached on. Joyful, joyful, we, are, we adore you. 271, stand as we...